0: Now, for some time now, I've had a desire to learn how to paint. Now, I know I spent a number of summers working for my dad, who is a painter, and so I feel pretty confident in painting houses, uh, learning how to paint bathrooms and kitchens, and I'm actually looking forward to Habitat for Humanity. When they get to that stage, I definitely feel like I can uh, volunteer. Even painting now, I can paint uh, walls without even having to tape the baseboards. Uh, But when it comes to the kind of painting that i wanted to learn how to do, it's not painting houses, but learning how to paint with canvases. And to mix colors and create pictures and express my feelings through art. And so this summer at Green Bay Bible Camp, I discovered that they have a painting course. And so my 11-year-old daughter and myself, signed up for this painting course, and I just loved it. I looked forward every morning to going and working on my painting. And since then, I have enrolled in some different painting courses at the Delta Rec Center, and I've also been learning a ton on YouTube. There's a lot of good teachers on YouTube. Painting with Jane has become one of my favorite YouTube channels. As I enjoy Jane's style of painting, she's also a very good instructor and my computer now is beginning to get paint stains on it because I I watch and then I have to pause and then do what she's teaching and then continue on with the video. But uh, if you want to learn how to paint, Painting with Jane is the YouTube channel you want to go to. I've also discovered the store Michaels in a much greater detail than I ever knew Michaels before. I'm constantly in there, and they always have these 40% off discounts, and they have been taking a lot of my money. I've been discovering the difference between good paintbrushes and bad paintbrushes and good paints and bad paints and palette knives and canvases and textures. It's been just a wonderful experience in the last few months. Uh, For years, Van Gogh has been one of my favorite artists as well as Claude Monet is another artist that actually my wife and I both enjoy and have some of his paintings around our house. This summer, there was an exhibit at the Vancouver Art Gallery of Monet's paintings, and I know there are a few different people in the congregation that went to that. Uh, Nancy and I did as well. And recently, I have discovered and been enjoying the contemporary painter Stephen Shortridge. And his beautiful work. Now, if you know anything about painting and you've seen the last three pictures that have just been put up by the last three names I've mentioned, you will notice that I'm fairly taken in by impressionistic art. And thanks to painting with Jane, I've been trying my own hand at impressionism as well. Here's uh, one photo of a painting that I've done of some poppies that Jane taught me how to do, as well as another painting I did of a woman walking in the rain, which is one of my favorite ones I've done so far. And then there's another painting of trees by a lake that I have just done. What I like about working with this style is how you get to mix, not necessarily blend the paints, but mix the paints in bright colors and in vibrant ways, and you get to slop around on the canvas with thick paint, with the palette knives, and so the paint actually has a 3D effect that kind of comes off of the canvas. I find this Impressionism also very emotive, a great way to express what I'm feeling. And you don't approach this kind of art, or even look at these kinds of paintings for logic, but, or to study the detail. Instead, you, you stand back, And they invoke a feeling within you. They help you express and feel. I didn't put up any of my sort of more dark and creepy paintings. Um, I have a few of those for some of those kinds of moods I felt too. Which uh, I think Nancy would rather I just hide in the closet somewhere. But uh, uh, some of those paintings as well. But this morning's message is not going to be an art class. But... The third and final message I'm doing on the Christmas season and particularly about the incarnation. The fact that Jesus, that God in Jesus became flesh, became human in the incarnation. He embodied this world. The baby Jesus was totally and completely human. Just like you and me. Yet he was without sin, because as we've also learned, sin is a sickness on humanity. So Jesus was fully human the way that humanity is intended to be fully human. At the same time, baby Jesus was totally and completely God, just like his heavenly father is totally and completely God. Theologians refer to this this Jesus being fully human and fully God is the hypostatic union a concept that doesn't define how this takes place but it puts the parameters around what Jesus was not Jesus was not only a human being Jesus was not only God Jesus was also not some kind of demigod. Jesus also was not some kind of God human mashup. But that Jesus was one person of two natures, God and human, without the two natures becoming confused with each other. Now, theologians have written tomes on this that go far beyond the intent this morning. But those are the parameters in which we can rightly think about the person of Jesus. But as we've been discussing over the last few weeks, how this incarnation, the fact that Jesus is God and fully human, what the implications of this say about God and his creation are implications. That will affect the way we approach everything about life. Because what the incarnation says. Is that God's creation is good. It's not bad. Yes it's been affected by sin. It's been infected by the disease of sin. A disease that leads to death. But it's the disease that's bad. It's the sin that's bad. Not the creation. God created very good physical and spiritual and god in the incarnation affirmed that his creation was good and then last week we saw that the incarnation also affirms that his creation is true that the physical creation all of around, all around us is not an illusion it's not just in our mind it's not just in our heads It's not just a shadow where the spiritual world is the good world or the real world, and the physical world is sort of a a less real world. But the incarnation affirms that the world, the material world, including our bodies, is real. It's affirmed by God as real, not illusion. And what we're going to look at this morning is that the Incarnation also affirms that creation is beautiful. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. So the Word became flesh, became human, and He made His home among us. One of the things that you can always discover about art is that it tells you something about the artist by looking at art or looking at the kind of art an artist does it it expresses something about who the person is just like the creation tells us something about the Creator we can look at creation and we can know certain things about the artist who made the creation. In the same way, if you go into a house that has been completed, and you look at the electrical work that has been done in the house, you can tell something about the electricians that put the work in. You can tell if they were diligent, if they were thorough. You can tell if they were cheap and cut in corners or unethical. You, even if you've never met the person, you can look at the work... And you can know something about the person who did the work. God's creation tells us about God's character. Meaning, therefore, that if God's creation is good, we know that the God who created it is good. And if God's creation is true, we know then that the Creator is true. And in the same way, if God's creation is beautiful, we know also that the creator of that creation is beautiful. God is good, true, and beautiful, and it's reflected in a good, true, and beautiful creation. And this morning, as we look at this third one, let's start with just hearing what the Psalms have to say about the beauty of God's creation. And notice how it always points back from the beauty of creation to the beauty of the creator. Now with the Psalms, we could spend the rest of our morning just going through all the Psalms that talk about this. But let me just give you a couple of samples. Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet, their message has gone through the earth and their words to all the world. Psalm 95 says that God holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The seas belong to him, for he made it. His hands formed the dry ground too. As I said, we could just go on and on with the Psalms, expressing God the creator, who made this beautiful creation. But let's listen to Jesus. As Jesus tells us about the creator and the creation as well, when he says things like this, why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as these. Again, Jesus is affirming the beauty of God's creation, even the flowers, and saying, if this is what his creation's like, What is the creator like? And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers, you hear that? God cares even for the flowers. Even though they're here today and they're gone tomorrow, will he not certainly care for you? Why do you have so little faith? And then the apostle Paul in one of his sermons said, God never left them. People, that is, without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, God sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. And what he wrote in Romans, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky just by looking around. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse in knowing God. Just with this sample of verses, how can anyone say that God's creation is bad or untrue or unbeautiful? God's creation is good, true, and beautiful. And God, by becoming Jesus and by becoming his creation, taking on flesh is an affirmation of that creation and an affirmation that the Christian message is not a message of escaping creation, but a message of God reestablishing his creation. Did God make all of this just to get rid of it? He made it. And he plans to save it. What God's going to destroy is the unartistic elements that have entered into creation because of sin. And one of the exciting implications of God's incarnation is that God chooses to restore his creation with humanity. Or else why? Become human. Why didn't God just do it as God? It's because what we see in the incarnation is Jesus not only representing God, but Jesus representing us. He's representing our role and showing us that we have a part in restoring God's creation. God is doing this alongside of humanity. That's what he planned from the beginning. He created men and women in the Garden of Eden and said, look at my creation, my beautiful creation. Now you take care of it. Look after it. Govern over it. He's simply restoring us back to that. That's why the whole idea uh, that God's plan is to have his people escape his creation is the opposite direction of which the Bible is pointing us to. He's calling his people... To be part of restoring creation. And therefore God from the beginning and in his restoration. God created us to be artists. Right at the beginning he gave us a palette. With everything that we need on it. And said create. The incarnation tells us that this is still God's plan. That God has come alongside of humanity to restore us, to create. Listen to an example of how God blesses humanity and even shows us this back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament when he called his people to build the tabernacle. Listen to how he called his people to beautify creation. In Exodus 31, God speaking says, Look, I have chosen special individuals. I have filled them with the Spirit of God, giving them great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. They will be master craftsmen. There will be those experts in working with gold, silver, and bronze, skilled in engraving. And mounting gemstones and in carving wood. Masters at every craft. I've given people special skills and craftsmen so that they can make all the kinds of things I've commanded. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark's cover, the furnishings, the table and utensils. The pure gold lampstands with all of its accessories. The incense altar the altar of burnt offering, the wash basin and its stand, the beautifully stitched garments for the priests, the craftsmen must make everything as I have commanded them. The question you could ask yourself is, why didn't God just build it himself? Why did God call people to do all of this work? And notice also that God doesn't say, you know, just have the priest throw on some junky old leftover rags beautifully beautifully stitched garments gold lampstands may it be beautiful because it is an act of worship to a beautiful god i like what stephen shortridge whose painting i put up earlier said Which has given me an even deeper appreciation of impressionistic art. He said, we are invited into this work by God. The impressionist creator. Who left much of his creation unfinished. I believe he invites us to partner with him by using the beautiful colors on his palette. What a great description. God's creation was created good, but not finished. That's why even Adam and Eve in the garden had to plant crops, had to take care of it, had to tend it. God created his creation, but if he didn't have humans alongside of him working his creation, the fields would would just have weeds and would just grow all over the place. It's humanity working alongside of God that puts together beautiful fields and crops. It's humanity working alongside of God that takes the very things of God's creation and creates things out of it. And so what um, Shortridge is saying is that God in some ways is like an impressionist God. He creates everything that's needed there. And you can see the picture, but the details have been left for us to fill in. It's a blessing. Did God create intentionally for us to be able to be part of the details? 1600 years ago, the great Christian thinker Augustine implied the same thing when he wrote in one of his works, by his goodness, God not only created every object already formed, but also every object that is formable. And then he goes on, in the same way, God communicates to everything its possibilities, not only that it is beautiful, but also that it has the capacity, or it is capable, of being beautiful. God not only created this world and things beautiful, but he created them with the capacity for beauty which means he has called alongside of him humanity to take the colors and the paint that God has created and to work with it. To be a part of his very good creation. Again, Shortridge writes, I often wonder what beauty doesn't exist yet because we didn't create it. When I hear this, I just think, how fun is that? How wonderful is our God? It's like me being given now uh, some new canvases and some new paint and brushes. And so it's all been created for me. But I've also been blessed with, have fun. Create. Paint. Imagine. The incarnation affirms that God made a good and true creation, but it also affirms that God made a beautiful creation and is restoring his creation to beauty by allowing us to participate. That's why the incarnation is a God-human joining. We get to participate in making creation beautiful. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright illustrates the already beauty of creation, but the anticipatory beauty of creation. Meaning that God created things beautiful, but we can beautify them even more. That creation has its beauty in and of itself, but it points towards, and it's prepared for even a greater beauty. And he illustrates it by saying this, that a chalice, for instance, has a certain beauty to it. In and of itself. But it's also meant for a greater beauty. As it's meant to be filled. And drunk from. In the same way. There's a beauty in a violin. So in N.T. Wright's analogy. A violin. It's like God created the violin. But yet. It's meant for an even greater view Beauty. And that is, it's meant to be played. And so in the analogy, it's like God creating the violin, but creating the violin so that humanity could pick it up and play it and make it even more beautiful. In the same way, there's beauty in a wedding ring, but it also takes on a greater beauty when it's worn by two people who love each other. That creation, God's creation, is beautiful, but it's prepared for a beauty even beyond it. And it's up to us as humanity to use our imagination and our creative abilities that God has given us to bring it about to these beautiful ends. And he writes, "says to make sense of and to celebrate a beautiful world." Through the production of artifacts that are themselves beautiful is part of the call of being stewards of creation. Genuine art is thus itself a response to the beauty of creation. And what it does is it points to the beauty of God. And then N.T. Wright goes on to warn about two dangers that we can fall into when it comes to art. There's the danger of only seeing the sin and the chaos and the ugliness that has affected our world and therefore creating art that is meaningless, without purpose, like a lot of so-called modern art that you see today. In some ways, modern art expresses a certain philosophy. If you believe that the world is just random chance, if you believe that the world is just chaos, if you believe there's no rhyme or reason or anybody behind anything, then it makes sense to just take paint, throw it at a canvas completely randomly, let it splatter all over the place, and then look for meaning in it. Because that's the underlying philosophy of which some people look at the whole world. It's just a splattering of meaninglessness, and so let's try to find meaning in that. N.T. Wright correctly says that, that there's, this is not Christian art, because it doesn't come from a Christian proper perspective of the world. But the other extreme is the danger of sentimentality or cheesy art. And that is trying to deny and hide from the sin and disease that is in our current world. And so there is a lot of really bad, quote-unquote, Christian art that's just plain cheesy and ugly from the other extreme. It's sappy, it's sentimental. Both of these are rightly not called art. Christian art, the kind that Christ's incarnation and resurrection call us to create, is redemptive art. It's the ability to find beauty in the ashes. It's art where the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. Where those who mourn are comforted. Where the meek inherit the earth. Where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled. Where the merciful obtain mercy. The pure in heart see God. The peacemakers are called children of God. And the persecuted for righteousness sake are part of God's kingdom. See an artist's job is to see what others can't see. And then to help them see it. They see what others cannot yet see and then help them see it. See beyond their immediate circumstances. In, in many ways, if you just insert the word Christian for artist here, it's a wonderful description of the role of the Christian. A Christian's job is to see what others can't see and then help them see it. Because we see through the eyes of redemption. Redemption through the eyes of, yes, a world that has gone sick, but also through a world that has begun the process of restoration. Through the incarnation and the resurrection. On February 5th in 2016, Hassan Youssef and Nadi Merhi decided to take their wedding pictures among the war-torn rubble in Syria. When asked why, the artistic photographer, Joseph Eid said that they did this to show that love is stronger than death. That is redemptive art. The pictures you see. That is redemptive art in photography that in the midst of the rubble in the midst of what looks like loss love still wins that's why one of the the most redemptive and now classic novels of all time in the last while is the lord of the rings the Lord of the Rings. And why does it continue to speak to culture so much? Both Christian, non-Christian culture. It's because despite so much of the darkness. There's always hope. And the light is just shining through. To the point where in the end. Victory is won. But it's won in the smallest. And some would say like the gospel. In the most foolish and simple way possible. Good wins. It's a redemptive story, the Lord of the Rings. God has called us to create and to redeem. And this is done at all levels. Every time we plant a garden, we are redeeming the soil. Every time we build houses like Habitat for Humanity, for people who can't afford and are stuck in a cycle of poverty, we are redeeming families and homes. See, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus still had the nail scars on his hand. And isn't it interesting that something that in some ways is such an ugly thing, scars... Now, because of the resurrection, it becomes beautiful. Jesus' nail scars are like art. It's interesting that after his resurrection, new body, he decided to keep the scars. What was ugly becomes beautiful. Just as the first century Roman instrument for execution became the most beautiful and widely used symbol to identify followers of Jesus Christ. You understand how ridiculous it would be if you were a Roman that lived 5, 10, 20 years BC and you had the familiar sight that along walkways were hundreds of crosses people beaten to a pulp and nailed to these crosses, bleeding out, birds pecking at their eyes and their flesh, and you knew that this is where they hung the worst of criminals to expose them for all society to see what not to become. Would you ever have predicted that within a few centuries, churches would be hanging that thing in the center of their building? How did something so ugly end up becoming something so beautiful? It's the foolishness of the gospel, it's redemptive art. It's God restoring all things. And he writes says, the beauty of creation to which art responds and which it tries to express imitate, and highlight is not simply the beauty it possesses in itself, but the beauty it possesses in view of what it's promised towards. It points towards and beyond itself. We are committed as Christians to describing the world not just as it should be, not just as it is, but as by God's grace alone it one day will be. Our job as Christians is to continually point forward, not backwards, It's to continually point forward to the hope that we have in the resurrection of what God's creation, including us as part of that creation, will one day be. And therefore, in the midst of that, that's how we live. Viktor Frankl wrote a famous book. He was in a Nazi concentration camp called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, as a psychologist, he studied what were one of the key factors for those who psychologically were able to survive the concentration camps and those who were not psychologically able to survive if they were able to make it through and not get killed. And he said the key difference that he noticed is those who had hope were able to mentally survive. Those who were able to see past that situation that they were in, who clung and hung on to hope, were able to mentally survive. When you had no hope, you despair. It's the hope that Christians have, the hope of the future that we anticipate that helps us survive no matter what we are going through. It's art. And when art, we try to Portray that. Art tries to portray beyond itself hope. I never used to understand why anybody would want to paint a bowl of fruit. But now that I'm learning how to paint, I find myself much more aware of God's creation. It's actually interesting. I didn't really expect this. Um, Even the other day, we went as a family out to the White Spot. And as we pulled up in the van and parked White Spot, there was a bush right in front, and it was raining out. And for the first time in my life, I was just noticing how the leaves on the branch and the bush were drooping because the rain was hitting it and how the rain was dripping off the leaves. I hadn't noticed those things before. And now I'm going, oh, I wonder if I could paint that. Um, There's just more of an awareness Of even the smallest details of God's creation, even the formation of fruit as it sits in a bowl, there's beauty to it. And I want to join God in creating, expressing, and imagining what can be done with his creation. It's like God has created all the Lego you ever need and said, here, have fun. What a wonderful God is that? I mean, how boring would eternity be if creation was completely finished? How boring would eternity be if I got there and God's like, everything's done, nothing to do. Like, okay. And how long is this? Forever. Woo, that sounds terrible. Uh, But if I've got all the Lego in the world and I've got all the freedom to create and God says, have at it. And I say, what's my limits? What's Whatever you want to do. And you can just keep on doing it. There's no limit. The only limit is your imagination. Create, build, do it again, try another. That's the creator that has made everything. And has called us to share in his creation. And has called us to share in eternity. Of coming alongside of him and continuing to create. Notice what the psalmist says here. May the glory of the Lord continue forever. The Lord takes pleasure in everything he's made. Hear that. It actually, all of this around us, it makes God happy. He takes pleasure in all that he made. The earth trembles At his glance, the mountains smoke at his torch. And this is the line I want us to hear because it's so important. Let all sinners vanish from the face of the earth and let the wicked disappear forever. See, this is where rapture theology completely gets it wrong. Rapture theology says, let all God's people vanish from the earth. Why? Give all this to the sinners? No, that's not God's plan. God's plan is for the believers to inherit all of this. Let all sinners vanish from this earth. Let all the disease, the death, the decay, the yuckiness, the ugliness, may all of that be gone so that God can restore it all. That is gospel hope. That's what we're called to. And then the psalmist ends by saying, let all that I am praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The incarnation affirms that God's creation is good, not bad. His creation is true, not fake. His creation is beautiful, not ugly. And we've been called to see this and to see what others do not yet see and then try to help them see it in the way we come alongside of God in creating and working with what he's given us. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be our Savior and Lord. We thank you that he took our body and flesh and blood upon himself and showed us that this body of ours is a fit place to be your dwelling place. We thank you that he did our work, that he earned a living, that he served the public and showed us that even the smallest tasks are not beneath your majesty and can be done for you. We thank you that he lived in an ordinary home, that he knew the problems of living together, that he experienced the rough and smooth of family life. And showed us that any home, however humble, can be a place where in the ordinary routines of daily life, we can make all life an act of worship by participating with you in beautifying your world as we anticipate the day that you come back and restore it all. Amen.